Hey everybody, Corey here. Before this episode of Penknife begins, we'd plan to hit you up with one of those shameless requests for money. And while we'd be very grateful to anyone who wants to contribute to our Patreon, our main need right now is for you listeners to help us promote Penknife. The best way you can do that would be to press pause right now and go and rate us on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on whatever platform you're using to listen to us right now. Likewise, it'd be great if you could follow us and share a Penknife post on your social media. And most importantly, tell your friends. Okay, enough begging. Without further ado, here's the episode. May 2nd, 1991. It's almost exactly 10 years after Jack Henry Abbott killed Richard Adan, and Josie Kaczynski and his wife Kiki are spending the early evening at a book launch party hosted by their friends Gay and Nan Talese. Nan, you'll remember, was James Frey's editor. The man of the night is Republican US Senator William Cohen, who's just released a spy novel, and the party is populated with the wealthy and powerful, Dan Rather and Arthur Lyman among them. Kaczynski, charming as ever, makes the round, shaking hands, telling stories, and ends the evening by asking Cohen to sign a copy of his novel for him. Cohen obliges, spells Kaczynski with a Y. But no matter, Josie won't be reading it anyway. Afterwards, Josie's in the mood for dinner at Wolf's Delicatessen his favourite restaurant right across from their apartment. But Kiki reminds him that they need to go home and begin packing. They're leaving for the newly free market Poland in a couple of days for the grand opening of Jerzy Kaczynski's bank, Amer Bank. But when they get home, there's a message on the answering machine from Jerzy's current girlfriend, a Polish jazz singer named Ula Dujak, asking him if he'd like to get together. He calls her back, and yes, she says, Wolf sounds good. Josie gets there first and tucks into his usual corner booth. The waiter brings him a glass of water, some half-sour pickles and coleslaw while he waits for Ula. Josie sips the water, thinks. After dinner, they decide to go to a movie. Peter Greenaway is drowning by numbers. It's a surreal kind of fairy tale in which three generations of women all drown their husbands. The first one holds hers down in a bathtub while he gasps at his final breaths. Jersey watches intently. Having been terrified of water most of his life, he's now no longer afraid. After the movie, they decide to go to a bar. They have tea and discuss the film. The conversation moves to their future. Ula wants Jersey to leave Kiki and move to Florida with her and her children. They've been debating the Kiki problem for some time. Tonight, Josie is vague, but also seems to finally make a decision. Ula's cautiously elated. Josie's gonna come to Florida with her. Their new life together will begin soon. But for now though, Josie has to go home. They make a plan to meet up tomorrow and take a walk in Central Park. Josie enters the apartment quietly so as not to wake Kiki, who is, as usual, asleep in the living room. He then goes into the bedroom, signs a couple of books, writes a note, and then runs a bath. While waiting for the bath to fill, he takes off all his clothes and swallows a fistful of sleeping pills. Then he gets into the tub. 
pulls a plastic bag over his head and stops being there. If Norman Mailer's reputation could survive him stabbing his wife, it could definitely survive his pal Jack Abbott stabbing Richard Adan. Sure, he took another hit in the press, but it wasn't long before he'd put the Abbott affair behind him. But hold on a second. From the beginning of this series, we framed the Adan murder as the pivotal moment in these men's stories. It sent Abbott away to jail, where he eventually killed himself, and made enemies for Kaczynski, who eventually took him down. Did Mailer really emerge unscathed? In a sense, yes. He kept writing, and in the final three decades of his life, he published five more novels, plus a wealth of essays, biographies and political commentary, and even directed one last movie, based on his novel Tough Guys Don't Dance, a movie for which Mailer won a Raspberry Award for Worst Director. The majority of his novels were started under the promise of being the big one. And though several of them managed to accrue so many pages that they work really well as doorstops, or weapons against junkies who try to cause problems at bookshops, none of them delivered on their ambition. There was the Egyptian trilogy that only lasted for one book, a CIA saga that was left to be continued, plus a book narrated by Jesus and another by a servant of Satan. None were absolute hits, they sold well enough to make it on the bestseller lists, and more importantly, to keep the fat checks coming. The mailer name remained a recognizable brand, printed in an ever-growing font size on his book's dust jackets. But what about the hipster? What about the psychic outlaw, whatever the fuck that means? What about the Rev, the Electricity Free Sundays, the Stickball World Series? What about the radical chic and the outsider who was gonna go inside in order to bring it all down? Well, all that ended when Abbott plunged a knife into Richard Adan's chest. For years, Norman Mailer had lived beyond his means, getting paid like a writer, but potting and fathering children like Diego Maradona. The financial troubles got so bad that for his 50th birthday, his big get-rich-quick scheme was to hold another massive party, because those always went well for him, and charge 30 bucks a head. No freebies, all friends and ex-wives had to pay. He sold the evening as the night he was going to make a really big, game-changing announcement. Some people thought he'd be running for office again, or perhaps getting a vasectomy. But instead, Mailer announced the creation of some bullshit government watchdog organization that clearly was not going to amount to anything. The party was a disaster, and after expenses, netted only $600. Attendees were rightfully pissed, and one of them, a certain Adele Morales Mailer, shouted, You blew it, Norman! Blowing it again and again. But by 1981, Mailer was 58 years old, had five ex-wives, nine kids, and grandchildren on the way, and being the punching bag just wasn't paying off like it used to. If the 60s had been a glorious party, the 70s had been a long, painful hangover. And now, with the 80s upon him, as bright lights, big city, conspicuous consumption supplanted radical chic, 
Melo decided to start playing nice. Well, nicer. The rebel days were over. It was time to ease into the life of an aging lion of American letters. In the last episode, we heard how Jersey's response to the Jack Henry Abbott affair was a major political misstep that would end up turning the left wing of the literary world against him. Nation editor Elizabeth Picotta, who, years earlier, had received a letter from Jersey that was so poorly written and riddled with errors that she thought there was no way it could have been written by the famous author, began looking into the whispers that Kaczynski used ghostwriters. She passed the piece down to her colleague, Jeffrey Stokes, who then teamed up with writer Elliot Fremont Smith, and on June 22, 1982, the two of them dropped the bomb Kaczynski had been waiting for his entire career. Published in Mailer's old rag, The Village Voice, and called Jersey Kaczynski's Tainted Words, the expose was not quite a fatal blow, but it was damn near close. Jersey would never recover from its wound. The article focuses on three main accusations. The first was that Kaczynski continually lied about his past and may have worked for the CIA. The second was that he surreptitiously got someone to translate his early works from Polish, then pass them off as English originals. And the third, and most damning, was that he used editors to render his ideas into legible, stylized English prose, i.e. that he didn't really write his own novels. Stokes and Fremont Smith wrote that, quote, almost nothing Kaczynski says can be relied on, and that he has been treating his art as though it were just another commodity, a widget to be assembled by anonymous hired hands. For their report, they interviewed a number of his former editors, and each of them told similar stories. Essentially, he supplied the ideas, I came up with the words, he showed me an extremely sloppy first draft. I turned those notes into sentences, paragraphs, and chapters, etc., etc., etc. Perhaps the most damning bits of the article are Kaczynski's own words. While Stokes and Fremont Smith were interviewing him, and he was caught in a lie about using an assistant, John Hackett, on the novel Cockpit, Kaczynski tried to minimize Hackett's role by saying, uh, He was a student who needed money. It didn't work out. He couldn't sit still. They were drugs. Nice. Assassinate the character of the guy who received no acknowledgement and poor compensation for the work he did for you. Classy Jersey. And worse, when pushed into a corner, he retaliated with this outrageous lie. Not a single comma, not a single word is not mine. And not the mere presence of the word, but the reasons why as well. This goes for manuscript, middle drafts, final draft, and every fucking galley. First page proof, second and third, hardcover editions, and paperback editions. Fine, fine, I hear you saying. Melo's literary career got kind of boring, safe, and predictable. But what about his personal life? And more pointedly, what became of the retaliator? Well... After an exceptionally drawn-out and contentious divorce from his fourth wife, Beverly Bentley, Mailer married and immediately divorced his fifth wife, Carol Stevens, in order to legitimize their nine-year-old daughter Maggie, Mailer's seventh child. Then, a few days later, 
he wed his sixth and final wife, Norris Church. Norris was a writer and model, 26 years his junior, with whom he made a deal. In her words, he wrote and I did everything else. Not a bad deal for Norman, but even that wasn't enough for him to stay faithful. From the very start of their marriage, Melo had a slew of mistresses, including wife number five, Carol, who he continued to sleep with 10 years into the marriage with Norris. But the most notorious of his lovers throughout the 80s was model, actress and writer Carol Mallory. As previously discussed, Mailer had a thing for prying his partners for intimate details about their ex-lovers. Adele had been with Kerak, Beverly with Miles Davis, and it's been rumored that the wife in between them, Jean Campbell, had slept with Jack Kennedy, Fidel Castro and Nikita Khrushchev. Norris's sexual history might have impressed him as well. Born and raised in Arkansas, she had an affair with a certain politician who, well, I guess I've already said enough. A politician from Arkansas. A slick one. A disgustingly slick one. Anyhow, I bring all this up again because Carol Mallory, who herself had been with a number of celebrities such as Robert De Niro, Warren Beatty, Peter Sellers, Richard Gere, Rod Stewart, and even a certain hammer-wielding lunatic named Rip Tone, well, she used Mailer's abnormal interest in her ex-lovers as evidence that he was bisexual. She also claimed that he was in the habit of going to gay porn films and that he tried to get her to have threesomes with gay men. And, according to Mallory, the reason Mailer never left Norris in order to make her wife number seven was that Norris, quote, knew things about Norman that he did not want revealed. She published this and other daggers in a salacious memoir called Loving Mailer, a book that's chock full of spite, with passages such as, quote, Norman Mailer was about money. Not liberalism, not sex. Literature and publicity? Yes, because they generate money. It's true that the book often reads like the work of a jaded ex, and of course Norman's official biographer, the great J. Michael Lennon, denied most of it. So there's plenty of room to doubt some of Mallory's claims. But she wasn't the only one who thought Mailer was bi. Adele Morales, for instance, was also certain of it. And many argue it was evident in his writing as well. His novel, Tough Guys Don't Dance, is widely considered to have a strong homosexual subtext. But what does it matter if Mailer was bi? Well, there was always more than a bit of the performative to Melo's legendary macho persona. He was always trying too hard, overcompensating, and perhaps repression of his bisexuality was the reason. In any case, by the early 90s, Norris Church confronted Mailer about his infidelities, and Norman finally decided to throw in the towel on adultery. Throughout his 60s, he had still managed to maintain relationships with five or six mistresses. But as his 70th birthday approached, our serial philanderer realized it was time to finally become a family man. Mallory's memoir would have been quite the blow to the Prince of Bourbon's ego and married life, but luckily for him, she was merciful enough not to publish it until a few years after Mallory's death in 2007. Kaczynski's neocon pals at the New York Times sprung to his defense and enlisted a young Michiko Kakatani to write a piece debunking the Voice article. 
Bakakitani, who retired a few years ago and whose reviews I miss because she was one of the few who never held her punches, ended up declining the piece after looking into the accusations and realizing that debunking them would be impossible because they were all more or less legit. Incidentally, while she was researching this piece, she received a number of extremely unnerving hang-up calls at home. She got an idea of who they might be from when one day, at a bookstore, she noticed Jerzy Kaczynski watching her from a distance. And Kakatani wasn't the only one Kaczynski stalked. When he got word that the Village Voice was writing an article about his use of ghostwriters, he repeatedly called those ghostwriters and let them know he was watching them. In one case, with the writer Richard Hayes, after a number of harassing phone calls, Kaczynski showed up at his door and threatened him. Essentially, it went, If you continue to talk, then you have good reason to be worried. Very, very good reason. It was at this time that Kakatani told the New York Times that she was quitting to go work for Time magazine. Sensing that it'd be a bad look if people thought she was pushed out for refusing to write a support piece for a plagiarist who is now stalking her, they promoted her to book critic, and she'd be there to make Mailer's life hell for years to come. But the Kaczynski defense still needed to be written, so one of his buddies, John Corey, another neocon, took it upon himself to write the piece. He further politicized the issue, claiming that the voice and the nation were, because of their leftist slant, influenced by rumors that were being spread about Kaczynski by Polish communists. It was essentially red-baiting, and papers and magazines throughout the country called it out for being just that. The Kaczynski story was now everywhere, and it would only be a matter of time before further exposés came out debunking the lies about his childhood and accusing him of plagiarism for using too much of the novel Nicodeme Dishme in his book, Being There. So, okay, Norman lost some of his edge and somewhat learned to behave himself in his later years. But that didn't mean he no longer had enemies, and the critic that Kuczynski stalked was one of them. Writing for the New York Times, Michiko Kakutani reviewed most of Mailer's later books and, well, she didn't really like them too much. One she found, quote, boring and presumptuous, derivative and solipsistic. Another she considered, quote, a cut-and-paste job. And then there was that, quote, silly, self-important and at times inadvertently comical book Mailer wrote about Jesus. Convinced that these reviews were hurting his sales, Mailer eventually resorted to a good old racist ad hominem attack calling Kakutani one-woman kamikaze who only got to keep her job because she's a threefer, Asiatic, feminist, and uh, what's a third? Well, let's just call her a twofer. She's a token. Ouch. Mailer might have mellowed a bit with age, but even during the early aughts, in an age of increasing political correctness, even after the prolonged beating he took from the press and the public, even after having been repeatedly labeled a clown and a buffoon, he couldn't stop himself from saying stupid shit. Or, one could argue, that all the sexist, racist, and homophobic nonsense he spouted for over five decades was not just stupid shit, but very tangible proof of his true colors. Anyway, the criticism that hurts the most is the criticism you know yourself to be true. Kakutani understood that Mailer had become obsessed with fame and celebrity a long time ago and that it had hindered his ability to write good books. 
let alone the great American novel he kept on promising but would never deliver. Jean Malaquet, Mailer's old political guru and close friend, had come to a similar conclusion, and in the mid-90s, he told him exactly that, live on French television. Being a celebrity is your infantile malady, he told Norman. There was a time when intellectuals were, so to speak, in ideological opposition. Some of them were revolutionaries. All of them, you included, sold out to the establishment. You belong to the establishment. Fast forward nine years. Jersey has written only one more novel, called The Hermit of 69th Street. Conceived as a defense against his detractors, it was to be his magnum opus, the book that would prove to the world that he could write, that he truly was one of the U.S.'s greatest novelists. But in the end, if it proved anything, it proved that he was better off paying someone else to write his books. The Hermit of 69th Street is brutal. 635 pages of unreadable blather. It's one of those nadirs in the history of publishing that resulted in thousands of copies of a book being printed that I'm sure almost no one read. I challenge you listeners right now to go out and try to track someone down that's read it cover to cover. If that person exists, I reckon they're even sicker than Jersey. After the Hermit of 69th Street bombed and the continual trickle of accusations meant that his literary career was all but over, Jersey decided to spend his time engaging another passion of his, making money. And what better way to do that than to start a bank? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, what Ramona said in the beginning is true. At the end of his life, Jersey Kaczynski put down his pen and picked up a briefcase, one of those barbell-sized 1980 cell phones, and went ahead and opened a bank in Poland. A mayor bank. Trust me, I'm a professional. A new decade is underway and life's not so bad. The Soviet Union looks like it's about to fold, Kevin Costner is dancing with wolves, and far too many people are dancing with vanilla ice. Vanilla ice, ice, baby. Jersey has reinvented himself again. A banker now who alternates his time hobnobbing with the rich and famous in New York and LA, then taking long sabbaticals to play polo in the Dominican Republic and ski in the Swiss Alps. He's gotten really close to his new girlfriend, Ula Dudziek, so close that he might actually feel something like love for her. But his heart's giving him trouble, his sexual superpowers are beginning to wane, and despite the fact that he's still accepted by the establishment, he can't help but hear the whispers wherever he goes. Kaczynski lied about his childhood. Kaczynski didn't write his own books. Kaczynski is a fraud. Jersey Kaczynski is not who he says he is. On May 2nd, 1991, about a month shy of his 58th birthday, Jersey Kaczynski took his own life. The note he left read, I'm going to put myself to sleep for a bit longer than usual. Call the time eternity.
So there you have it. Jersey and Norman are as dead as Jack. And I suppose we could just end it there. But can we really say farewell to this season and to these three criminal writers without discussing what, if anything, is relevant about their legacies? Well, given the fact that I'm more than sick about thinking about these guys, I would like to say yes, we've all had enough Jack, Jersey and Norman. But when you put it that way, okay, I guess you're right. We're not quite done yet. No, we're not. I mean, when I think of this season as a whole and the important points it brought up, the first thing that comes to mind is the way you introduced it, Corey, when you talked about how your attraction to this particular niche subject was largely due to the fact that because these people are writers, you identify with them and therefore you can't easily put them in the bad other box that you usually do with other criminals that you read or hear about. I think the ironic thing about that setup is that For me, Jack Henry Abbott lived one of the most unrelatable lives imaginable. And I mean that in the sense that from a very early age, he was systematically dehumanized by the US prison system, making his ability to relate to what we think of as universal human experiences relatively minimal. He was truly raised by wolves. So did the fact that he happened to write some letters that Mailer collected into a book make you see him in a different light than other murderers? Well, I definitely didn't identify with the vast majority of Jack's life story. But the more that I read about him, the more I realized there was actually a lot about him, his bookishness, his social awkwardness, his insecurities, etc., that I did actually identify with. Yeah. I mean, one of the big surprises of the season for me was that I found Abbott to be the most sympathetic of the three. I feel the same way. The man who murdered two people and spent almost his entire life in prison seemed like less of a bad guy than the other two, rich and famous writers who were beloved by a lot of people. But for me at least, there were two even bigger surprises this season. Two things that made us rethink the whole thing. One was the Tom Broca interview that we found toward the end of our research, in which Jerzy Kaczynski admits to rape. The other surprise, which to be honest was kind of hiding in plain sight, was that there seems to be substantial evidence that Norman Mailer was bisexual. These two reveals, well, they definitely flipped what I thought I knew about them upside down. Okay. So take me through both of them, first Kaczynski and then Mailer, and explain why these reveals seem so pivotal. Well, I'll start by giving everyone a little behind-the-scenes look at what happened when I found that Brokaw interview. Basically, I flipped the fuck out. For one, a big part of me had grown to like Jerzy Kaczynski. Obviously, I never got to know him, but after reading everything I could about him, I saw him as a sort of clever, goofy character with a penchant for telling extremely dark, albeit extremely tall, tales. And I'll admit this, because I liked him, I think I subconsciously chose to ignore many of the warning signs, both in his biography and in his writing, that he was actually a sexual predator. I mention that because I imagine many people did the exact same thing during his lifetime, excused the warning signs because he was charming and famous. But when I read about him freely admitting to rape without even expressing any remorse, that view that I had of him was suddenly blown to pieces. I, I took a screenshot of the interview and texted Santi immediately. Yeah, and when we spoke about it that night, your big question was, do we have to rewrite the previous seven episodes where he's depicted as a fun-loving pervert and where I play him with my terrible Borat accent? At first you were like, Fuck, we clearly have to change everything about this guy. There's nothing funny about rape. Rapists are not funny. Right. But then you talk to me and I set you straight. And we decided, and I think this is crucial, that we could keep him as both the goofball Oompa Loompa that he was and as a rapist. 
because funny guys, lives of the party, famous writers, attach whatever adjective you want, they can be rapists too. Yeah, that's a good point. In the last book of Knausgaard's My Struggle, he takes 400 pages to make the point that even Hitler, the ultimate evil, was a multifaceted person too. And if there's one guy that we all want to other, it's him. Because believing Hitler is part of humanity is a deeply disturbing thought. But it's the truth. He, just like Jersey and Mailer and Abbott and anybody else that gets labeled bad or even evil, was not hatched in Satan's nest, but born from our society. Particularly in the case of Abbott. He was very much influenced by the fucked up society in which he was raised. Yeah. The tidy narrative is that rapists are guys with Jeffrey Dahmer glasses who lurk in dark alleyways. But obviously the truth is that women usually know they're rapists and that the vast majority of them are the guy next door, a friend, a partner, an acquaintance, and not the horror movie evil psychopath type. And going back to what we said in one of the first episodes, we constantly try to put a big moral distance between those bad guys and ourselves, but the reality is that that's all bullshit. It's just something we construct around crime and criminals to feel safer and better about ourselves. Yeah, I mean, this is related to another main question we put out there at the beginning. Um, what, what does the addition of the element of criminality mean to the divorcing the art from the artist debate? It makes me think about the recent controversy around Philip Roth's biography, which was written by this guy, Blake Bailey, who was accused of rape. I read this article in the Washington Post arguing for the book to disappear, and uh, the author asked, who believes in and loves a rapist book? Ignoring the connections and believing the book belongs in a vacuum is the privilege of people protected from discrimination, erasure, and assault. As someone who isn't protected from those things, the question is wrong-headed for me because it presumes that we, the unprotected, are by default morally pure. It kind of ignores the fact that all people, the protected and unprotected, contain multitudes, grey areas, that they can be the creepy rogue, the good storyteller, the goofy borat and the rapist at the same time. And that I too have within me the ability to be both victim and victimizer. And the reality is that every one of us has been both of these things. So I'm very firmly in the camp that you should divorce the art from its creator. Hmm, yeah, I don't know. I, I kind of want it both ways, in the sense that I don't believe in censoring art because of what its creators did. But knowing what they did definitely changes the way we see the work, and I think that's a good thing. In this age of cultural reckoning, where we seem to finally be getting serious about confronting deeply rooted oppressive patterns, there seems to be a tendency to selectively forget or excuse shitty behavior from the past. Now, I'm definitely not saying that we should go back through history and cancel everyone, but I think that knowing about artists' lives generally tends to complicate their art and gives it a richer, more nuanced context. Yeah, and that tends to make the art both more challenging and more rewarding. Yeah, exactly. I mean, take John Lennon, for example. He beat his first wife. Now, the Beatles aren't being pulled from the radio, nor should they be. But at the same time, no one talks about the fact that he was a wife beater. Because it's not a nice narrative. It changes those deliciously poppy early Beatles love songs. You hear, I want to hold your hand, and you think, wow, what pure romance. And when you're enjoying that song, or God forbid, anything by Michael Jackson, it's not pleasant to think about what their creators actually did. But I think that knowing their stories, and thus knowing that the idealized Hollywood version of love that those songs often conjure is false, well, th that's actually a really good thing. Yeah. To me, it's up to us listeners, readers, whatever, to digest the fact that great art can often come from complicated or straight up bad people. And I think we have to find a way to come to terms with that fact without having to throw away their work. Well, 
except if their work is just a clear manifestation of their badness, obviously. I really like Céline, for example, particularly his first two novels, but his later anti-Semitic manifestos, no matter how well-written they might be, well, they cannot be considered art, let alone good art. I think we have a tendency to slip into dualisms, and on top of that, we often conflate the artist and their art. And if we do that and end up discarding art because of the terrible deeds of their creators, well, we'll miss out on a lot of great books, movies, music, etc. I mean, knowing about the lives of artists should just stop us from turning them into heroes or idols. Yeah, I don't know. I've never been tempted to fetishize the creators of art I love, particularly in the case of the creators of music, um, which I think stands apart from other art forms. At its best, it's much more an articulation of a collective feeling rather than that of an individual. And I have really no interest in what musicians ate for breakfast or who they went to bed with, any of it. But that that's another story. Um, I think suffice to say it's ironic that I'm making this podcast because in general, I don't give a shit about artist biographies. <laughs> well, I'm definitely the opposite. I always want to know. I think that knowing that Jersey did not live the stories in The Painted Bird is important. And likewise, knowing that he very well might have lived the rape scene in Blind Date is equally very important. Um, I think also when you know the context of Mailer's American Dream, that he just stabbed his wife right before writing a book where the Mailer character kills his wife, you recognize that his proto-Patrick Bateman character in the book is very much based on himself. It's not satire. He's not trying to lampoon the rich with that novel. In fact, he's just celebrating the powerful, privileged white man who can kill women and get away with it. So, of course, knowing this changes the novel for me. It changes it a lot. And instead of just seeing it as complete shit in terms of both content and form, I now recognize that it has a very strong and very fucked up political message. Yeah, particularly in the case of Mailer, I really don't think you can divorce his art from his life, as he spent his life arguing that good art can only come from experience. And the experience that he most celebrated was violence. He once said, actually, that if love was the theme of the 19th century novel, then violence had to be the theme of the 20th century novel. So I think it's absolutely fair to judge him by his books and his books by his life, because those are the rules he set up in order to live and write. Yeah, old Jersey was similar. There's a quote from his novel, The Devil Tree, which I think is very telling. It goes, if to live as one's own archetype is to be an artistic creation whose medium is the present, I should accept being no more predictable or controllable than any other work of art. So basically he's saying there that there shouldn't be any bounds on art. So if you make your life your art, then there shouldn't be any bounds on your life, which is essentially the same argument that Mailer made in his infamous White Negro essay. Not only should artists do whatever the fuck they want, it's important that they transgress social norms and occasionally do so criminally. All right, well, let's get back to the three big reveals and address the one we haven't discussed yet in this context of divorcing the art from the artist. This idea that Mailer was very likely bisexual. Do you think that this makes his behavior more forgivable because he was dealing with his inner struggle or overcompensating to fit into a homophobic society? Well, I think it's relevant, to a certain extent at least, and definitely puts a lot of his bullshit in a very different light. It doesn't excuse any of his misogynistic rhetoric or actions in any way, of course. But if we're going to try to understand toxic masculinity, we should understand that one of its greatest proponents was very likely just performing it in order to compensate for his own feelings of inadequacy. And yeah, I guess that explaining his character 
or thinning him out in a sense, does make him a bit more sympathetic. Yeah, not really from my perspective. I think stabbing your wife in the heart is plain reprehensible, no matter what you're dealing with. But anyway, I think we should close with one of the major themes of the podcast, the American dream. Essentially, our writers were examples of the three main archetypes of the dream. You've got the redemption narrative, the rags to riches immigrant narrative, and the much less celebrated narrative, that of privilege. Two of these are mostly myths, and one of them is real. Right. The Abbott story, at least until the murder of Richard Adan, was quintessentially American. It doesn't matter how down on your luck you are, you can always pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make something of yourself. Everyone has that opportunity, America tells you, but of course it's all bullshit. Abbott was broken down by the system, and that made sure he didn't really stand a chance. And I'd even say that the prison industrial complex did not fail to rehabilitate Abbott, because that's not actually their job. They were successful in doing what they're supposed to do, which is to make sure that the prison class remains incarcerated by subjugating them and promoting violence. It's a success of the real American story, which is the story of slavery, white supremacy, mass incarceration, and the rich fucking over the poor. Yeah, uh, then you have Kaczynski, the immigrant who went to the US with next to nothing, parked cars, chauffeured a drug dealer, and then within two years he's published books on his way to literary fame, the old hard work and elbow grease narrative. Yeah, that's the story he told. The reality is that he had access to power. In Poland, his family had money, and then he got the CIA to help him when he arrived in the US. There's the myth of the American dream, that it's a meritocracy. And then there's the reality, which is that hard work only gets you so far. We hear the story of the guy who starts out with the push card and in 20 years he has a factory. Or the guy who starts out with the little rinky-dink website that sells books and in 20 years he's the richest man in the world. The American dream tells us that it's hard work that allows you to move from the little push cart to the factory or from the website to Jeff Bezos' world domination. But in reality, how do you do it? Well, you do what Nicodema Dijma and Jerzy Kaczynski did. You use people and discard them when you're done with them. You lie, you cheat, and steal your way to the top. Yeah, and that unethical behavior is totally justified, because the dream is not just about hope for success. It's been sold as a right. You deserve it. And you don't get rich and famous by being kind to people. You do it by screwing them before they screw you. Yep, exactly. And this is a great quote. When Kaczynski returned to Poland after being away for years, he was asked... Jersey, you seem to personify the American myth that one can go to that country and become a famous writer overnight. And Kaczynski's response was, Yes, absolutely. That is what happened. Uh, yeah, in any case, the only one who really lived the American dream was Shock Horror, a privileged white man, Norman Mailer. That's who the American dream narrative works for. It works for the people who wrote it, rich people, often white and male, but more importantly, rich. Even as we're reckoning with privilege, it's still the rich who have the most access to the American dream. Exactly. And they also have the most ability to get away with their crimes. But enough with the American dream. It's time to get to work on season two of Penknife. is created, written, and produced by Corey Eastwood and Santiago Lemoine. Ramona Stout is our editor and narrator. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. The sound design, the music, and all things audio 
are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. Our website, penknifepodcast.com, was built by Flor Lopez. And a very special thanks to Mr. Rick Urbanelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. Season one of Penknife took us two years to make. We're eager to get started on season two, and trust me, we've got some really good stories about writers behaving badly, but to do so, we need your help. If you enjoyed season one and want season two to become a reality, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash penknife to support us. A cup of coffee or two a month would go a long way. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Penknife on whatever app or platform you're using. And most importantly, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend about us. And thank you for listening. <laughs>